have you ever um, have you ever walked into like a public restroom and you you finally get to the sink and you're standing there and you're thinking about something this happened to me very recently you're thinking about something and you just kind of stick your hands under the water and you sit, sit there for a second and it takes you about a 30 seconds maybe it feels longer and you realize this thing hasn't come on yet um, and you're like I don't think people are actually watching in care but you feel like an idiot at least I do anyway you feel like an idiot standing there and there's a handle you got to turn the handle on um, I think sometimes we approach our Christian life like that. We just kind of stick our hands out and we're kind of waiting for something to happen. But there are things that we need to be doing. And this is the place that the author of Hebrews makes this huge transition. There's something for us to do. Like, there has been stuff for us to do so far and the first ten chapters we have been learning about the wonders of the gospel, the superiority of Christ, to everything, to the, the whole Old Testament way of doing things, of relating to God. We've been marveling at that, I hope. Leaning into it, thinking about it, meditating on it, profiting from it, growing from it. There have been some exhortations up to this point, but that's not been the main focus. The main focus of the letter up to this point is to say this is what God has done through Christ for the sinner who would come near to God. And this, right here, 19 through 25, is really kind of a setup for what ever, for the rest of the chapter, the rest of the three chapters of exhortation. Even though there's going to be some teaching and reminders of teaching in there, the primary purpose of that particular section is to exhort and to give you practical ways to put what you have learned into practice in your life. Um, and here, he kind of sums up the whole thing. I, I, I think we should always pay attention. Anytime you're reading a passage of Scripture and you see these words, faith, hope, and love, in the same few verses, stop and pay attention. Stop and pay attention to what he's talking about. Um, and so we see that in this particular section today. Faith, hope, and love. And each one is connected with one of his three exhortations that he gives in this section. So think about that as we read. Um, then we'll pray, and then we'll begin to dissect the passage. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened, up, opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other, one, encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. This is a, uh, just a kind of a brief breakdown of the letter so far. Um, really the, the overarching structure of the letter. And then in 1 through 10, he says, this is how 
Jesus is greater. This is how he's greater. He's the final perfect revelation of God to man. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than Moses or Joshua or Aaron or any other earthly character. He's a, he promises a better rest than Joshua delivered the people into. He's a greater priest. He is the great high priest who made the perfect sacrifice, which actually makes us holy, and calls us into a greater covenant than the Old Testament covenant because it comes with greater promises. And now he's going to say live differently because Jesus is greater. That's the big topic. Today we're going to look at the three sort of um, I guess, spheres of, 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 of um, exhortation that come from the gospel. Since the gospel is true, these three things are of huge importance. These three areas are of huge importance. Let's pray and then we'll go into the passage. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that your word is true. Thank you that your, your word is true and that we may see its effectivity in our lives by putting it into practice, by trusting in who Jesus is and by obedience to your word, we can see the truth of your word. Uh, it will happen in our lives. Um, Father, today, Help us to draw near to you through your word. Help us to know you better. And in knowing you, help us to love you as we ought to. And worship you and obey you as we ought to. Help us to love each other and encourage each other. Because life is hard. Um, you know, it doesn't matter where you live or what your particular challenges are. Life is hard. Uh, from the very poor to the very wealthy. From the very well known to the to the most ignored. Life is hard. Father, help us to be an encouragement to each other in the things that we are reading about and learning today. And, and please, help us to be uh, strengthened in the hope that we have. In Jesus' name, amen. Therefore, brothers and sisters. So therefore marks the transition that I already told you about. There's been therefore before, but they've been kind of smaller, right? He'll say, this is true, therefore do this. And I would say that this particular therefore is closing out, is marking the transition from the first section, primary focus is to teach us about Christ and to magnify Christ. And this transition is now what do we do? So, and he says brothers and sisters. Um, I was reading in a commentary, and, uh, and several commentaries actually, and I, I found it, kind of curious that some uh, commentators, uh, I'm not going to try to assign because I, I, I probably would get them mixed up and give credit to the wrong person, um, but one uh, commentator said, brothers and sisters, um, this, he's writing to Jews, and he's calling them brothers and sisters in the Jewish sense because he's writing to Jews and he's a Jew, and then another commentator says, you know, some people say that he's writing to Jewish brothers and sisters because he's a Jew, other, uh, I would say that he's writing to Christians because he's a Christian. Well, both things are true, so it seems silly to try to figure out which one of those is true. I think it's also possible that when he says brothers and sisters, he means it in the same way that when Jay stands up here and preaches and says friends. It's because he's talking to a people that he knows, who know him, who he loves in the Lord and feels a responsibility for in the Lord that they would grow. And so he could very well mean specifically that, and not in his mind at all, is the fact that they're Jews and he's a Jew, or that they're Christians and he's a Christian. Maybe that's secondary, 
Maybe it's just the fact that he knows him and he loves him and he wants to encourage him to hold on. That's where I would land, regardless of whether he's has it in their mind that they're Jews or that they are Christians. He loves them, and he feels a kinship with them through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence, um, the author of Hebrews has talked about confidence before, and I would direct your attention back to chapter 4, the end of chapter 4, actually. Confidence is not something that the world is unfamiliar with, and it is not something that the Bible ignores. But confidence is not the same as arrogance. Confidence is not the same as um, egotistical, as uh, you know any other any other similar word you'd li- you'd like to put in place there. Confidence directs its um, certainty to something else. Confidence directs its certainty to something else. Now, I know some people may say, be confident in yourself. Whatever. That's the world. That's not us. That's not Christianity. We have a reason for our confidence. And I think chapter 4 points to it very, very clearly. Uh, In verse 14, he says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven... Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So what is the reason for the confidence that he calls the people to here? It's that We, the church, we who have believed the gospel, have a high priest who is like us because he has gone through all manner of temptation. He has put on flesh. He made that point in the end of chapter 2, that he had put on flesh, he had shared in our flesh and in our blood, so that he could represent us. And so now he says, we have a high priest who is able to empathize with us, who is able to draw near because he has experienced the weakness of temptation and the weakness of human flesh, and yet, at the same time, he's acceptable to God because he didn't sin. This is our high priest. This is the reason for our confidence. We have a Savior who is like us and will not shun us, but who is like God and acceptable in his sight and therefore able to interact with us for God. We have confidence because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have confidence because the one who represents us is always acceptable and will always make intercession for us. To enter the most holy place. Now, I'm not going to go into this in great detail, but you remember that the earthly temple had a holy place and that that was closely guarded. The entrance into that holy place was closely guarded. Even the regular holy place, which is the, the, what you would call the temple surrounding the, um, the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant would have been kept. The entrance which had the, the, the incense uh, that you would burn, uh, that the priest would burn once a year on, on, on the Day of Atonement, and he would go in and sprinkle the blood. But that happened once a year, and only a certain select few of the priests were able to go in. So, 
That's all representative. But this holy place, he already told us, again earlier in the letter, that the holy place that Jesus entered into is the actual presence of God, the throne room of God, where because of Jesus, we can enter in. So he says, we have confidence to enter that holy place. We have confidence to enter the very presence of God. By a new and living way. Now, I would say there's a lot that could be said about these verses. I don't want to get too detailed. But by a new way, this is keeping our attention on the new covenant, keeping our attention off of the old system of sin, sacrifice, sin, sacrifice, sin, sacrifice, of needing to go in and have a, having an earthly priest administer for you. All that is put aside. And it's, it's, it's interesting that he says the new and living way. Because the old way was through the sacrifice, right? So death, 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 blood, and blood, and blood. But for, through Jesus Christ, though he did die, he is now living. And he lives forevermore. So this is a new and a living way. This is not a way that can ever end. Jesus will never die again. This way will never be insufficient to take us into the presence of God. So it's a new and a living way. And then he says, through the curtain, that is his body. I think he would be reminding his, his readers of, obviously, the temple curtain that used to stand in the way. And as long as Christ was living before the, 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 the crucifixion, that way was still closed. But when that curtain was torn in two, when that body was broken, the way was opened. and We were welcomed in. So again, he draws our attention right back to Jesus. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, I think a lot could be said about this. Um, I just want to draw, us our draw our attention to the fact that we are called to be a holy nation of priests and that we have a high priest Jesus. And because of this high priest Jesus, we can enter into the holy of holies because of his work as high priest because of his constant intercession, constant representation, because he stands in the presence of God representing us. We have confidence to enter in to the real and the true presence of God. So that's where he says in verse 22, let us draw near to God. What I find so fascinating about this phrase, let us draw near, um, is all over the New Testament. Um, I think that what he means here, particularly by this drawing near, um, first we would see within the phrase itself, and then within the letter of Hebrews, what he means by that. So, let us draw near to God. We know he's talking about the actual presence of God. Um, in Exodus chapter 3, when Moses encounters the burning bush, God says, don't come any closer. Take the feet off your, or sandals off your feet. The place where you are is holy ground. When, uh, I think it was Hophni and Phinehas tried to come near with strange, no, that Hophni and Phinehas, that's Samuel's kids. The other guys, uh, the first two sons of Aaron, when they tried to draw near with strange fire, they had approached the holiness of God in a wrong way, and he, they died for it. He killed them. Because they were not careful about drawing near. When Moses was instructed by God, uh, I think it's Exodus 19, um, to tell the people, don't come near the mountain. 
You'll die. Here he says, draw near. Come near. It is not insignificant that the God of heaven, in whose presence a sinner does not stand a chance, they'll be consumed by the fire of his holiness. That this God says, draw near. Because of Jesus Christ. We'll talk about the implications of drawing near later because that is the first of these three exhortations. He says, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart. Um, I think this is one of the first things that I noticed about myself as a believer um, and one of the first prayers that I had because, you know, like a lot of us, I grew up in a church and made a profession of faith when I was very young. Um, Would have thought, you know, up until I was about 12 or 13 that I was actually a believer. And then I started to notice that, you know, underneath all of what I had been taught, I didn't actually believe. Even the things that I was told, I didn't actually believe. I was insincere in my heart. I was saying all the right things on the outside, but inside I didn't actually believe. Sincerity is actually a real qualification, right? A sincere heart is only possible through the gospel. This is why in Deuteronomy chapter 30, when God essentially gave the gospel, but without talking about all the particulars of Jesus dying on the cross and resurrection... He talked about the the change that the gospel would bring about in the heart of a person. And I believe that change was still possible for the children of Israel. But in Deuteronomy chapter 30, he says, you know, when you, basically when you come to your senses and you see that all these blessings and curses have fallen on you, and you turn to me, you return to me, he says, then I will circumcise your hearts. And I'll bring you back. I'll restore you. And that circumcision of the heart is the thing that's absolutely necessary. A sincere heart is not possible without the heart circumcision taking place. And the heart circumcision is not a surgery you can perform on each other or on yourself. It is something that only God can do. But that sincere heart only comes about through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul talks about that to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1. The sincere heart. Again, we're not going too, too much into these things because we've already really talked about them through the, throughout the letter of Hebrews. And then again, with a full assurance of faith. I'm not going to, again, go into great detail. Chapter 11 is coming, and we will talk about faith um, until we probably um, didn't realize there was that much we didn't know about faith. Um, again, I'm not talking about faith. She's sitting right there, I have faith. Um, the full assurance that faith brings. Confidence. Certainty. Again, The world uses faith in a completely different way than we use as Christians. Faith in the Bible is a gift of God so that no one should boast. It doesn't originate inside of you. The faith that the world talks about is whatever they can muster up in a moment. But whatever we're talking about is faith that God has given. That even in the amount of a mustard seed, which is how some of our faith feels sometimes, it doesn't matter because it's going to spread and it's going to grow like the gospel seed that's been implanted in our life that will grow and produce fruit, faith is going to grow and it's going to spread throughout our lives if we are actually saved, it has, if it's actually been planted within us by God. And if it hasn't, then it's going to diminish and wither. And you'll find yourself without a sincere heart. But faith from God 
brings full assurance. Not some kind of vague, fingers crossed, wish. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. Again, he's already talked about the effectivity, uh, the effectiveness of the sacrifice of Christ in actually cleaning your conscience. I would urge you, I'm not going to do it today, but I would urge you to look back at Ezekiel chapter 36, where he talks about a time in the future where he's going to sprinkle clean water on the people. And it will actually purify them. And he's going to take out their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. And they're going to walk in his ways. They're going to be compelled to walk in his ways. They're going to have a new spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. Ezekiel chapter 36. But that's what he's alluding to here. The sprinkling. What also he could be alluding here, or could be part of this, is um, Exodus chapter... I made a note of it earlier. I can't remember just this minute. I think it's 24. But when the law has come down and Moses has, has the copy of the law and the people say, yes, we're going to obey this law. We're going to obey it. And so he takes the blood of the sacrifice and he sprinkles the scroll and he sprinkles the people. He sets them apart as the people of the covenant of God. Those are the people whom God has covenanted with. And I think that's also what he's saying here. Our hearts have been sprinkled. We have been, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have been sprinkled by the blood of the covenant, called into fellowship, into covenant fellowship with God. And then having our bodies washed with pure water. Again, could be multiple illusions here, but I think uh, allusions A, not illusions I. So um, look it up if you have a question. Um, allusions to uh, the washing. Now, the washings of the Old Testament uh, were for various reasons, but it all boiled down to physical impurity. And the author of Hebrews already told us that that physical washing was only a sign of what would actually happen to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the heart cleansing that we need. But here, I think he's making an allusion to, uh, particularly, to baptism. Because he says, look, you guys have believed in your heart. You've had your heart sprinkled through the work of God, through the work of God in the gospel, your hearts have been sprinkled. You've been made new. You've been set apart. You've been made holy. You're the people of the new covenant. And your bodies were washed with pure water. That is, you took that step of obedience that when you heard the gospel and believed, and you knew that this needed to be your, uh, you need to be included in this covenant, you needed a Savior, then in obedience to Christ, you were baptized. One of the strongest reasons, uh, one of the strongest uh, areas we have, even amongst Jews, who probably would have been baptized for numerous reasons before they knew, came to Christ, to be baptized after they believed in Christ. Is to say, I am now making an outward testimony. I'm identifying with Christ in His death, in His burial, and His resurrection. And I'm identifying with the fact that I needed to be washed of my sin and making a public statement about that. So, the inward reality happened through the gospel of Jesus Christ and faith in your life that God gave to you, and you testified to that by the outward sign of baptism. Mm -hmm. 
And he says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. Um, again, just like faith is, is, is defined differently by the Bible, hope is also defined differently by the Bible. When I talk to people about hope, um, even, even people who claim Christianity about hope, when they talk about hope, they are not talking about the hope that the Bible describes. Romans chapter 5, our hope in Christ is the hope of the glory of God, meaning that glory that we lost in our sinfulness has been given back through Jesus Christ, and one day we will see it in full effect in our lives. We will bear glory like Christ's glory, not exactly, we're not going to be deity, but we will bear perfectly the glory of God in our lives. There will be not one element of sin in our lives when we stand before him on that day. That is our hope. Our hope is not for a better tomorrow, we're going to get the job we want, we're going to have the house we want, drive the car we want, get the education we want, move to the place we want, get through this disease, get through this suffering. Our boss is going to get their comeuppance. None of that stuff that we quote-unquote hope for has anything to do with the gospel. The hope that we have in the gospel is that one day we're going to see Him, we're going to be like Him, we're going to know Him. We're going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the reward that, your fa- that my Father has prepared for you. That is our hope. And that is exactly why He tells them they need this hope. Because He understands that the suffering they've gone through, they will go through again. And we, as mature or maturing, whatever, Christians, we understand that those who want to live a godly life are going to suffer. That's why we need to hold unswervingly. Nobody has to hold to anything if they feel like they might be in if they don't feel like they might be in danger of letting go. You know, nobody nobody on a, in a ship in, in the sea holds firmly to something tied to the ship when the waters are calm, unless they like have extreme fear or whatever. They hold fast in a storm when they're being rocked back and forth and the wind's blowing and they're scared. That's when they hold fast. And he says, hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. Hold on in this world where ideas and quote-unquote truths and quote-unquote gospels are being passed around. Hold on to the hope that the gospel actually provides that God does have a good plan for your life. It includes suffering, and he's going to make you more like Jesus through that suffering. That's the hope that we have. One day we're going to be like him. And why? Why can we hold fast? Because the one who promised is faithful. The faithfulness of God to his word is an essential part of the foundation of every exhortation in Scripture. And every call to to believe something that God has done. Because if God isn't faithful, it's all pointless. If God is not faithful to his word, if you can't trust this, you have no hope. Nobody has any hope. None. Because Christianity is the only actual belief system that promises real reconciliation with God. Nothing else promises that. Christianity is the only belief system, Christianity based on the Bible, is the only belief system 
um, that not only tells you how it's going to happen, but it doesn't tell you that it depends on you, but rather on something God has done. Everything God says, he's faithful. So then he says, taking us to the third of the primary exhortations, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward loving good deeds. I like that he says, let us consider. He doesn't just say, let us love each other and encourage each other. He says, let us consider how. One of the most difficult things I think we can do um, as people, as believers, is to take our minds off of ourselves and put them on the needs of someone else. Um, And not in such a way as to be like, man, I'm a really strong Christian, and I see this person down here, and they're a really weak Christian. I need to bring them up where I am. Forget that. That's silly. That's making a disciple, uh, that's making disciples after yourself. No, you need to make disciples after Christ. So, make sure we understand that correctly. But how do we, I mean, think about that. Just think about somebody in the church. Um, you know they're a believer. As reasonably certain as you can be about someone. That you don't think about. That you don't consider on a normal basis. How can I, or you, spur someone else? How can we provoke in them? How can we encourage them to that? How can we exhort them to that? To love and good deeds. How can we do that? Now, I'll tell you that, you know, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about all the ways in which the members of this church have encouraged and exhorted me, just by example. Just by example. But that's not necessarily anyway somebody actually considering hey how can i spur sam on by doing this or jay or jim or you know any any one of us there's an intentionality toward the other i find it really interesting that we have sort of three um spheres that are being concentrated on in these three uh exhortations the first is toward god foremost move close to god the second is really about the self you individually hold fast to the hope that we have in the Bible, the hope that we have in the gospel. And then third, consider others. So to God, for the self, and for others. Not necessarily in that order. I would always argue that the movement toward God is primary, but, but that those three spheres, draw near to God, watch after yourself, And consider how you can encourage, strengthen, grow um, others in the faith. He says, not giving up meeting together. This is, uh, again, another strong place in the Bible where um, I would say that you don't have a leg to stand on if you think you can be a Christian by yourself. I mean, very, very plain. Not giving up meeting together is some are in the habit of doing. You can't possibly live an others-oriented life if you don't meet with the local church regularly. Can't do it. Um, So I just would remind you of that. I mean, I know I'm talking to, uh, preaching to the choir here. You guys are all here on a first service. But I want to encourage you to keep doing it. all the more as you see the day approaching. I think since the beginning of, I think, I think since the disciples watched Jesus 
go up into the clouds, and then they went back to work, and they experienced the first of the persecutions. I think that they were always expecting, not just them, but even their, the guys who came up after them, the, that second generation of disciples, the people that are being written to in the book of Hebrews, who didn't actually see Christ, as far as we can tell from the letter, themselves personally, but heard the testimony of those who saw Christ and heard Christ. And believed because of that. Or us, many, many, many generations of faith later. But in every generation, we have thought, I think, that the end must be coming soon. We've, and there's a good reason for that. As we are submitted to God, in accordance uh, with His perfect and excellent character, and as we grow in that, we as the church, provided we don't move away from the gospel, we as a church see the testimony of each other's lives and growth that happens. We see the way God has worked in our own individual lives and how we're growing, and we're seeing uh, uh, growth in accordance with the wisdom and the truth of God. So we're growing ever more godly, and we see the truth of that. And at the same time, the world around us, unless there's a great revival period and a lot of people come to faith within a given society and can affect the society as a whole... It regresses. It moves away from God. Instead of becoming more loving toward God, they become more bitter toward God and more idolatrous. Instead of holding fast to the truth of Scripture, they'll go to anything. They'll believe anything. They'll be like the people in Athens who couldn't wait to hear whatever the new teaching was. And that's the world that we see today around us, isn't it? And as a consequence of that, instead of loving others, they love themselves more and more and see others as an obstacle to their personal happiness. That's why, you know, as we see the day approaching, we need to encourage each other more because the world is more discouraging. Bring us right back to the main point. Since God has opened a new and a living way for us to enter into his presence, through the life, the teaching, the death, the resurrection, all the works of Jesus, our high priest, since God has opened up this way and made it available, First, let's draw near to God. Now, I think there, with the placement of this exhortation, drawing near to God is first and foremost knowing who He is and what He has done. That's first and foremost. That does mean time in the Word. That does mean prayer. That does mean actually giving God a thought throughout our day. What did I read this morning? How does God want me to live? Just thinking about what God has done. It doesn't matter where. Like I, I, I went back to um, uh, Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther in this last week. And I'm marveling at what God has done in their lifetime. Just wonderful things that God has done. Will he not also do the same? Not just physically if it comes to that. But spiritually in our hearts. He brings us back to Him when we wander. Even if we're in the midst of horrible consequences of our sin, He will restore us as we return to Him. God is always faithful to do that. Draw near to God. Let's draw near to God. In all the ways that that implies, looking at His Word, marveling at who He is, meditating on who He is, memorizing Scripture, 
praising God for who He is, telling Him how grateful you are. Let us draw near to God. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess. Listen, I know that every person in this room probably has some point of contention, suffering in their life. Whether it has to do with work, finances, emotions, relationships, um, physical diseases, uh, people in your life that you're struggling for because you want them to know Christ, people you're struggling with to, in relationship, whether they're believers or non-believers, children, work, whatever it is. Do not forget that though that trouble may persist until you die, the hope that we have is that God through it all is making us like Christ. That's the hope we have. Don't, don't hold on to any other kind of hope because every other kind of hope, God will take it away from you. Can, I should say, not will, but can take it away from you in order to make you concentrate on Him and the hope that He offers. If your hope is in your success, God might take it away just so that you can see that He is the source of your success. And you can apply that across the board. Our hope needs to be in that we are going to be like Christ. Thirdly, let us consider how to encourage, spur each other on toward loving good deeds. Jesus, uh, I think in in, uh, Philippians chapter 2, Paul gives us really the basis of his whole letter and what it means to have the mind of Christ when he says that we should have the mind of Christ, which is ours anyways through the gospel, who in spite of who he was, he let go of all that to love and to serve others and accomplish the gospel that God had ordained. We need to put on the mind of Christ and have an others-oriented life. How can we encourage the rest of the body? Finally, he who promises faithful. Um, Jeremiah chapter 1, God says, I'm watching over my word to perform it. Joshua, a couple places in Joshua, Joshua says, not one of the good promises of the Lord your God has failed. All throughout Scripture we see that God is faithful. And He's faithful to His Word. One essential part of the indestructible foundation of our faith, of our ability to draw near to God, of our hope for eternal glory, our love for God and our love for others, is that God is faithful to His Word. God is always faithful to His Word. Read His Word. Know Him in His Word. Put His Word into practice. And you'll see also how God is faithful. You will taste and you'll see that the Lord is good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You so much for Your Word. Thank You that You are always faithful to Your Word. Father, thank You for the faith that You have given us through the Gospel of Jesus Christ. That those of us who have been called who've been adopted, who've been chosen, that we have real and sincere faith, real trust in what you have done, genuine belief, and that belief will result in action. God, thank you for the hope that we have that we will be like Christ, that you are making all things new through the gospel, that you are purifying our hearts and purifying our lives so that one day we will stand before you free from accusation, free from blemish. 
Father, help us to use the life that you have given us to draw near to you, to exercise hope in your word, to practically work on our own sanctification, and to encourage each other in our sanctification. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.